reading from Galatians uh, chapter 5 from the beginning of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord our God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This Persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Amen. And we praise God for that reading of his holy and inerrant word. Well, let's turn to God in prayer again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, having sung your praise, having heard your word just now, we come to you now to confess our sins. And we recognize, as we've, in the words that we've just heard, our, our tendency to drift away from you. And this evening, we want to come back to you. And we know that uh, sin is real. And we know that we all sit before you this evening in need of your grace, of your forgiveness. We want to take the time to, to name particular ways we have sinned against you, against others. We want to confess uh, the times when we've been self-righteous. We ask for your forgiveness when we look down on others. When we look down on others who are uh, less fortunate than us in, in whatever way. And tonight we pray that you would create in us a pure heart. We pray that you would renew a right spirit within us. We ask that you would blot out our transgressions, whatever they are. We thank you that you're the God who is able to restore to us the joy of our salvation. You're the God who does not stay angry forever but the one who delights to show mercy, the one who has compassion on us, who treads our sins underfoot, 
and hurls all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And so tonight we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. Thank you that he has conquered death. We thank you that he has taken our sin on his shoulders. Thank you that he has gone to the cross for all who put their trust in him. Heavenly Father, we want to pray for our leaders. We remember uh, our leaders in Westminster and Holyrood. We pray for them to uh, seek out wisdom that is not simply from themselves. We pray that they would uh, lead with humility, that they might be conscious of the, the great responsibilities that they have. We thank you tonight for the Queen. We thank you for her uh, simple but real faith in you. And we thank you for the, the stability and the, the duty and the way that she has uh, conducted herself for so long. We thank you for her tonight. Father, we pray for those in our church family who have gone through really difficult times in the past few weeks. We especially remember the Mahler family. We ask that you would be near to them and surround them with your love and your care. And we pray for Sally and ask that you would bring full healing to her and give her peace in, in the midst of uh, all that she and the whole family have gone through in the last uh, few days. We remember little Joshua Coulter. We uh, pray for him having been in hospital this past week and we commit Max and Anna and Timothy, that whole family, into your hands. And Father, we pray uh, for some who've left us um, recently. We remember the Bannister family. We thank you for them. We thank you for the work of Solas. And we thank you for Andy and his uh, ministry. And we pray that that would continue to uh, develop and grow and be a real blessing to uh, your church uh, across the UK. We thank you for uh, him and that whole family. Commit them into your hands. We pray that you would provide them with a church family where they can belong. Father, we pray for those who uh, here maybe tonight who find work and the thought of uh, going back to work tomorrow a, a stress, uh, a burden. We ask that you would sustain them in in their work where uh, there is friction perhaps with colleagues or where uh, the demands often feel so much. We pray that you would strengthen them, help them and be near to them. We pray for those who are looking for work and ask that you would provide for them. And tonight we thank you for the, the partnership that we have with other churches. Uh, we pray tonight especially for Perth Free Church Thank you for Paul Gibson, the minister of that church. Ask that you sustain him and keep him. Bless his family. Help him as he preaches your word each week. And make that church family a real blessing to the, the community around them. Make them a light to those in that place who don't know you. Father, we pray for the students. We thank you <clears throat> for the many students you've blessed us here at, with at St. Peter's. We pray for those who have gone home now or who are uh, working or 
uh, going to be involved in different um, summer missions and uh, different activities. We pray you'd sustain them and strengthen them in their faith. We pray for those who go back to uh, more difficult home circumstances uh, or back to uh, churches that are uh, difficult too. We pray that you would keep them uh, walking closely with you and we pray you'd bring them back uh, here to St. Peter's after the summer, encouraged and blessed by you. And we ask that as we come to your word tonight, that you would speak to us. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts, Heavenly Father, would be pleasing in your sight. Please be near, especially to any here who don't know you. Open their eyes, help them see uh, the wonder of who Jesus is. And we bring all these prayers to you tonight in, in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, before we come to God's word, uh, we're going to sing from God's word, Psalm 119, about God's word. And uh, verses 65 to 72. Do good to your servant, O Lord. Be true to the word I receive. Let's stand and sing together. Do good to your servant, O Lord, be true to the word I received, teach knowledge and judgment to me, because your commands I to Galatians chapter 5 and let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, we thank you for it. We thank you as we've just sung that it is more precious than silver or gold. We confess that often we don't think that way 
And so tonight we pray that you would help us treasure it, help us value it, and help us do so because it points us to you, points us to your Son. And we pray that you would give us, as we prayed earlier, a clear sight of him as we come to your word now. We ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Um, the other day, uh, I found myself in uh, Waterstones in St. Andrews with two little boys. And uh, one of them, the eldest, was uh, allowed to pick a book. And he went to the Mr. Men section. And the book he chose was Mr. Rush. Mr. Rush. Um, I don't know what that says about us as a family. We, are we uh, rushing around too much? Maybe. I don't know. Um, but I thought I'd begin that way because last week I um, said we were going to slow down a little bit as we move into this uh, last section of Galatians chapter 5 and chapter 6. And one of the things that happens when we slow down is that we notice things and we start to see what's really there. And I don't want us to miss what's in Galatians. And um, when I first looked at this passage, um, I started to count all the different um, illustrations that Paul uses, um, and especially in verses 7 to 12, which we're looking at this evening. And uh, I saw so many that there will be 15 points uh, to this sermon tonight. I'm only kidding. There will only be, there'll be a few less than that. But I think there are lots of different pictures in verses 7 to 12 that Paul uses to help us prize our freedom. And as we saw last week, Paul's big concern is that we'll stand firm in what Jesus has given us, not go back to a life of slavery. And Paul knows that's something that we're really tempted to do. And the pictures that he gives us in verses 7 to 12, um, they are all locations. Okay, and the first one is the track, the track. And we're in the season of um, school sports days, aren't we? And uh, in our opening verse, uh, verse 7, Paul compares the, the Christian life to a race. Um, it's a race that we all start when we place our trust in Jesus. It's a long race. And Paul's friends had started it well. But someone had come along and someone had run alongside them and just sort of nudged them off course a little. And so when Paul asks a question in verse 7, he's not asking it because he doesn't know the answer. He is asking it to make them think, to make them picture, to make them try to understand what has been happening to them. They had taken a spiritual detour. Now, uh, detours can be uh, a lot of fun. The, the unexpected trip to uh, get ice cream, something like that. But detours can also be very dangerous. Spiritual detours can get us into trouble. That is the kind of detour that Paul is speaking about here. And notice the P word. Do you see that? In verse 8, 
like so much um, false teaching, what they'd heard was, was also persuasive. It sounded right. It sounded plausible. It was even quite compelling. It was teaching that told them they could have a deeper sense of assurance. It was teaching that told them that faith in Jesus was, was really good. But God had a little bit more for them. And if they just got with the program, if they did what they were told to, then they would achieve insider status. The whole time, like a runner nudged just a little bit off course, they were being pulled away from Jesus. Now I know and you know that teaching like this is not some kind of relic of the classical world. And there are all sorts of ways in which uh, we can end up taking a detour like this. And yet I wonder if we see how dangerous it is. Can you see what Paul is saying in verse 7? This teaching, he says, means we are not obeying the truth. I think that's a really interesting choice of word. I think I would have expected Paul to say, the one who hindered you from believing the truth. Um, obeying sounds a bit stronger, doesn't it? And it's similar to what we saw last week when Paul spoke about being severed from Christ or, or falling away from grace. I said we often hear language like that and we think of some kind of terrible, gross sin, some kind of immorality. When in fact, what Paul was saying was the opposite. Paul was saying that you can drift away from Jesus by getting more moral. But here in verse 7, I think it's even stronger. What is the opposite of obeying the truth? Well, it's disobeying the truth, isn't it? What do we normally think of when we uh, hear of Christians um, walking in disobedience? We often imagine that they um, have committed some terrible sin. Paul here says they're not obeying the truth because they've become more religious. Paul will speak about the kinds of sins we tend to associate with this sort of language. He'll do that later on in this chapter. But Paul says, you may think that you're obeying God by listening to people who'll tell you to, to just add extra rules to your Christian life. You may think that's not really that big a deal. But if you do, you are doing the opposite of what you intended. You are not obeying the truth. You are not living in light of reality. These are really hard words. These are different, unusual words, aren't they? But I think they're the kind of words we sometimes need to hear. They're words that cut in order to heal. You can drift from Jesus... Paul seems to be saying here, by running into sin, or you can drift from Jesus by running into religion. You can drift from Jesus by running into a path of self-righteousness and pride. 
And I think that second thing is perhaps, that second path is perhaps more dangerous than the first. In verse 9, Paul takes us from the track to the oven. The oven. Now, um, we have um, a bread maker at home. Um, I don't know what this says about us, but at the moment we only ever use it to make pizza dough. And we've obviously got our priorities right. But if you know anything about bread making, you'll know that leaven, what we call um, yeast, is very powerful. And those tiny, tiny little granules that you can hardly see, they, they pack a really big punch, don't they? Once they're added, well, then the change that is caused is inevitable. Even a little yeast can cause dough to rise. It spreads through the whole loaf. Now, uh, interestingly, yeast, and you weren't expecting me to spend much time this evening speaking about yeast, but yeast is mentioned on, on several occasions in the New Testament. It's mentioned, interestingly, positively and negatively. Um, in Matthew chapter 13, um, Jesus speaks about his kingdom being like yeast. It's, it's often hard to see in this world. It's hidden, um, it, but it's still there. It's still growing. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells his disciples to be on their guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul compares yeast to sin in a Christian church. And here, Paul says that false teaching is like yeast. It, it, it permeates, it spreads, it, it runs through a church. And what Paul is highlighting is that what may seem like a really small thing, a really small matter, is actually a really big problem. We thought about this uh, last week. Just as circumcision is not heart surgery, and so we might think, well, what's the big fuss about? Just as circumcision is a, a relatively small operation, even a little leaven, even a little bit of teaching like this, even a little bit of sprinkling of this kind of thing in a church family can cause problems for everyone. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says. I think one of the things Paul's reminding us of here is our responsibility to each other. As God's people, we're called to stay true to the gospel, but we're to do that for the benefit of one another. And one of the things we've seen in this letter is that uh, just how much legalism is about how we relate to one another. It's not simply about how we think about our relationship with God. It's often about the impression that we give or the behavior we see others doing. A lot of legalism is caught as much as taught. Often we can look at other people and think, if I was a real Christian, maybe you've never had this thought before. If I was a real Christian, I would do just what that person over there is doing. If I was a real Christian, I would be just like them. They seem really serious about their faith. They're doing that thing that I never seem able to do, whatever that is. 
God would accept me if I was just more like them. And thinking like that is contagious. Thinking like that spreads. Thinking like that stifles the the freedom we have in Christ. It is actually slavery. Instead, we're called to live in the freedom we've been given by Jesus. We're to enjoy it, to, to rest in it, to remind one another of it, to be ourselves in Christ. The track, the oven, location number three is the courtroom. The courtroom. We see this in verse 10. And when someone um, communicates that they believe in us, and for whatever reason, it can be a really powerful thing, can't it? Um, maybe especially if we've made a mistake of some kind. And in verse 10, Paul makes really clear that he has confidence in his friends. And he believes that they really are going to come to their senses and, and think the way that he does about the false teachers. And he's persuaded that they will take no other view. Their faith had been shaken. But Paul is a really good pastor. And Paul wants to instill confidence in these Christians. He's saying, I know you. I know you know what's true. And I am trusting God in this situation. I am believing it. As you read this letter... As you reflect on all the issues I've spoken about, you will see things clearly. I have confidence, he says, in the Lord. That's an interesting uh, addition, isn't it? That you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. I wonder if you look at in verse 10, if you can see the, the, the kind of positive and negative side of that verse. In the first half of the verse, Paul is really positive, isn't he, about these Christians. But as he gets to the end of the verse, Paul says that this person who is troubling these believers will bear a penalty. And then he adds these three words, whoever he is. Whoever he is. Seems there was maybe one particular leader Um, leading these um, beloved Christians astray, Um, a ringleader. Maybe he was um, a really impressive speaker. Maybe he had the the first century equivalent of a podcast, a a flashy ministry website, um, a big social media following. Or maybe it was his theological knowledge that, that gripped these Christians. He seemed to just know the Bible and back to front. He seemed to be able to, to pull new, interesting details out of it. But Paul says, whoever he is, whoever, he is going to bear the penalty. What we're being reminded of here is that Paul did not care at all about people's reputations. Paul was not a people pleaser. And we know this from this letter. In chapter 1, verse 10, he said he was not trying to please men, but 
God. He lived for what um, the writer Oz Guinness calls the audience of one. And in chapter 2, he had shown this. He had confronted a fellow apostle. He'd confronted Peter when he was in the wrong. I think many of us find uh, the thought of living like that really challenging, don't we? It's so easy for us to be um, intimidated by the credentials of other people. But Paul has learned to care more about God's assessment. Paul had learned to care more about what God thought. And just as Paul is confident that his friends will will come to a right judgment about all of these things, so he is confident in God's verdict, that God's verdict on the false teachers will be plain for all to see. God will judge them. They will have to give an account for the way that they have led others astray, Paul's saying. They will not get away with it. No, one day they will have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and answer for what they've said about him. I think one of the principles here is that those in church leadership are held to a higher standard than other Christians. And James chapter 3 is really clear about this point. And what that also means is that there is a difference between those who are taken in by false teaching and those who propagate false teaching. One of those groups will be judged more harshly. And I think, I wonder if there is an application for us here. When we see uh, maybe false teaching of different kinds in um, the church across Scotland, when we see particular branches of the body of Christ um, influenced by it, I think it's very easy for us to condemn all who seem to be taken in by it. But instead, I think we should... Pray for those people. Instead, we should realize that the main culpability lies not in them, but in those who have taught them. We should pray that the ordinary people in churches where God's word is not faithfully taught, that they would start to question what they hear from their leaders. They would start to hunger after true words from God, real food. And in all this, I think we should be really wary of pride. Instead of judging them, instead of thinking, I'm glad I'm not one of those people who goes to one of those liberal churches. Well, let's pray for them. Let's pray for a fresh hunger for God's word. That takes us to our fourth location. We've seen the track. We've seen the oven. We've seen the courtroom. Location number four is the pulpit. The pulpit. Here we're in verse 11. Now rumors, um, rumors are a a funny thing, aren't they? They they get out of control really easily. And in verse 11, it seems like there was some kind of rumor going around about the Apostle Paul. 
And this rumor seems to have been that deep down, despite what he'd written in this letter, despite what he preached, that Paul, well, Paul still actually believed in circumcision. If you got him on his own, if you pushed him against the wall, if you asked him what he really, really, really thought, well, he'd be tempted to say that circumcision was what made you a real Christian. Now, this was a false rumor that was spreading around. It was being spread by these false teachers. They were trying to manipulate their hearers. They were trying to discredit Paul. He's the kind of guy who says one thing to one group and another to another group. We don't like people like that, do we? Paul's teachers were trying to win these people back away from Paul to themselves. But Paul knew this was absurd. How can I be preaching circumcision? If I'm being persecuted, he seems in this verse to want to really clear things up. He wants to make his position crystal clear. But what is the connection between circumcision and persecution? What is the connection between not preaching circumcision and being persecuted? Why would refusing to advocate the former lead to the latter? I think the answer is pride and prejudice. Pride and prejudice. Preaching circumcision, preaching a system of doctrine that tells people if they just do A, B, C, O and X, Y, and Z as well, they can really be right with God. That kind of preaching, that sort of ministry appeals to human pride. It feeds our pride. It robs people of the joy and the freedom of Jesus. And it also leads to prejudice. Because when you and I are told, if we just do all these things that no one else is doing, because they're not as zealous as us, and then we do them, well, it's very easy, isn't it, for us to look down on others. We can be proud of ourselves. We can start to forget our our lifelong, ongoing, always need for Jesus. And what Paul points us to, I think, um, in verse 11, when he speaks of the offense of the cross, is that the cross really is shocking. The word Paul uses in the Greek is scandalon. And I'm sure you can hear um, the English equivalent. Uh, The cross humbles us. The cross of Jesus, it tells us that you and I, we cannot save ourselves. The cross says that we need an intervention from outside. We, we need to be rescued. And I think we can get so used to this kind of language that we forget. And there's a Roman um, graffiti, really famous Roman graffiti that illustrates something of this. It's known as the Alexamanos Graffito. 
And it was one of the most earliest depictions of the cross. And scratched in plaster is, is a figure on a cross with the head of a donkey. And in the corner stands a man with his hand raised in worship. And the inscription on this, this um, a drawing, it, it reads this, Alexamanos worships his God. And you don't need to be an art critic to know what that graffiti is saying, do you? It's mocking Jesus. It's mocking people who worship him. And you and I, we should never be surprised when Jesus, when his followers are mocked like that, when we are mocked like that. As Paul says, many people walk as enemies of the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness. It is weakness. And Paul had embraced this this wonderful shame. You and I are called to do that too. And speaking of offense, well, we come in verse 12 to our final location. It is the theater. And I don't mean um, the cared hall. I mean nine wells. I mean the operating theater. Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is a really shocking language. Um, I think it's the kind of um, verse that that is sort of fuel for the fire for for anyone who has a kind of even remotely negative view of Paul, isn't it? And we can hear them now. Oh, Paul, he's so angry. He's so, so harsh, so unloving. But I want us to realize that Paul speaks like this for two really good reasons. The first is that his completely legitimate anger at false teaching. False teaching slices up churches. And listen to what it has done to these people that he loves. Listen to the kind of language Paul has used throughout this passage. It has hindered them. It has persuaded them. It has troubled them. It has unsettled them. Those are not good things. Those are not things that you and I should just shrug our shoulders at. These are not people that Paul is neutral about. And Jesus was not neutral about people like this either. He had some very strong words to say to the religious thought police of his day. If you read Matthew chapter 23 later... Well, you will hear Jesus delivering woe after woe after woe against people like that. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Do you have a Jesus who can speak like that? 
I think the second thing to say is that um, castration was um, a practice. It was associated with pagan worship. And so Paul is saying of these false teachers, if, if they want you to get circumcised, if they want to get circumcised, they might as well castrate themselves. Because they are already leading people away from the true God. They are heading in a, in a pagan direction. I wonder if we believe that. Do we think of ministry and, and practices that might sound very, very legitimate, but are actually legalistic? Do we think of them as, well, not really that big a deal? Okay compared to other sins. Are we tempted in verse 12 to think that Paul is overreacting? Or do we see these things for what they are? Do we see them as dark? Do we see them as utterly opposed to Christ? Do we see religious teaching like this as attempts to rob Jesus of his glory? That is why Paul is so direct here. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. See, what all this comes down to is worship. Is Jesus really worthy? Is Jesus really worthy because he was slain? Or does somebody else deserve even just a little bit of the praise? Well, may God help us to see things clearly. May God help us to stand in our freedom and stand that we might run with our eyes fixed on our king who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God let's pray together our father in heaven we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that your word calls him our redeemer. And we praise you for the wonderful freedom that he has won for us, freedom from sin, freedom from punishment for our sin. Help us to rest and rejoice in what he has done for us. And help us believe that what you say about us is true, that we are loved, that we are your children, and that we belong to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we're going to close our service tonight by singing this great hymn, all about the cross that Paul loved and Paul preached. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Let's stand and sing together.
again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen <laughs> 